Hello, welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, speaking to you from Aspen, Colorado, where I just finished attending the Food and Wine Magazine Classic in Aspen. Uh, Now there are food festivals in practically every community in the country, but the Aspen Food and Wine one is special. It's celebrating its 40th anniversary this year. And so it's, it's kind of a, apart from being the sort of the old lady of food festivals, it's a kind of a reunion. A lot of the same people come back every year and it's just fun to, to get reacquainted with everybody. I, I don't come every year, I come every few years and, and this is my first time coming since the pandemic started. And as with a lot of festivals and conferences, there was great energy this year because uh, as my parent company, Informa, says, Informa has a lot of events and uh, they've observed that there's what they call revenge attendance. People who weren't able to go to anything for a couple of years are coming back in droves. So it was a fun party. Uh, some really good seminars that I'll be reporting on later. Uh, But a lot of the uh, people who I'm accustomed to seeing didn't come this year, and then there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, For one, uh, it's no small expense to come to Aspen at any time. It's, uh, you fly in maybe to Denver, maybe directly to Aspen, but flights to Aspen are expensive, or you rent a car, and then that costs a lot. Hotels here are expensive. Uh, I actually uh, traveled uh, in a fairly cheap way. I flew into Denver, which is my hometown anyway, so I'm staying with my sister. Then I took a train from Denver to Glenwood Springs and a bus from Glenwood Springs to Aspen, which is a beautiful way to see the country, and I don't especially like driving, and flying to Aspen is always uh, kind of a, a challenge because the weather here is so unpredictable that you don't know if you're flight's going to make it or not. Uh, But it's been a fun festival. The food has been really great and has exhibited the way that even the kind of high-end food that you expect uh, here in Aspen has really evolved. So there were a lot of really bright, uh, pronounced, bold flavors, uh, even at, at the sort of cocktail party-like events. There was a Xinjiang-style lamb skewer. Xinjiang is the western part of China, uh, where the Uyghurs are. And uh, I lived in China for a year, and there were Uyghurs in Beijing, where I was studying, who would serve similar lamb skewers. And the, the ones in Aspen were quite true to form, as was squid in a Szechuan peppercorn sauce that as Szechuan peppercorns are supposed to do, made my mouth go numb. So that's not something that we used to see at events like this. And it shows how cuisine has evolved in this country and that that we're really incorporating a lot more different cultural influences. And that's all to the good as far as I'm concerned. Uh, As I said, I didn't run into a lot of people that I'm accustomed to running into, but I did see some uh, new friends like today's guest, uh, Rob Ruba. I interviewed him last week before I came to Aspen, but I ran into him in Aspen and uh, it was great to see him. We caught up. 
Uh, he's the chef and owner of Oyster Oyster and was a food and wine best new chef last year, which is one reason that he was here this year. Um, and also he recently won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Chef in the Country. Uh, he's a good guy. He uh, Oyster Oyster is mostly a vegan restaurant, but it does serve oysters, which are not only sustainable, but regenerative. And we're, we're about to talk about that in, uh, in the podcast. Um, and he looks after his employees and, and really is at sort of the cutting edge of how restaurants are looking about how to run themselves uh, in the future. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with him because right now here's Rob Rubo. How you doing, Rob Ruba? I am doing wonderful. Thank you. Congratulations on your recent Beard Award victory. Your latest, your latest in accolades. You've been uh, running up a lot of them lately. You're a Food and Wine Best New Chef last year, right? That's correct. And everybody loves you, and that's nice. Um. <laughs> so. Tell me, well, well, what's what we we met very briefly during a press conference when I asked about all the changes in the Beard Awards, and and I think you summed it up pretty well that a lot of chefs make great food, but the idea of actually pushing forward, improving our planet and society and so on, is something worthwhile. Is that does that sum it up pretty well? Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's kind of crucial right now, right? Like we've been so far removed from, you know, everything's always been farm to table, right? So, right. but way back in the day, you were really working with your community and talking to your farmer and there was that connection and you knew what was going into your food and who the people that were growing it were and, and what their lives were like. And now we're so far removed from that. And the, you know, they put a cloth over our eyes and there's a lot of nasty things behind that, that we don't see every day. And I think as chefs, we, we have that responsibility. If we're going to serve people, uh, we're going to give them these lovely experiences in our restaurants. We should be making sure that the people who are getting that food to us are having good lives as well. So how did you uh, arrive to that conclusion and make it sort of the foundation of Oyster Oyster. Yeah. So about 16 years into my career, which would be about six years ago now, um, years of working in really nice high-end restaurants and, and doing everything that I thought was the best, I uh, started to reflect on that and see what was going into that, you know, whether it was just food waste or you know, actual sourcing and where this meat was coming from, from factory farms and what the life was like of the folks doing that. And I, I started doing some research and deep diving, whether it was existential or not. I was very disappointed in, in what was going on in the food world um, to the point where I didn't think I wanted to cook anymore. And then after some some self-talk, I realized, well, this is the only thing you know how to do. Um and your wife will be very upset if you you quit doing this. So I uh, used that platform for change and, and flipped the script. So I, I left my post at a very successful restaurant that was named after my grandmother to, to build a restaurant from ground up on sustainability. Um, 
And from there, just is a constant growth of knowing things. I think in the beginning, I had these ideas of just cooking vegetarian food without really any sense of place or, or that community that I talked about originally. And it's, it's always a work in progress, right? Like nothing we're doing is dogmatic. It's always about growth and continuing. And one day we might do something one way, but we find out there's a better way to do it the next day. And we just want to continue with that growth and always be inspiring for ourselves and our team. That's great. And you grew up in South Jersey, right? Yeah, I grew up in South Jersey to the ripe age of 17. Yes. And then you worked, it sounds like you're working in a family restaurant. Is that right? Uh, no, uh, my uncle was the, he was the executive chef, food and beverage director of Mohegan Sun Casinos. And I was in art school and my parents sent me there for a summer for a job to work at that casino. And that's where I got the hook that it like, I went there and I was blown away by it and loved it and never returned to art school and picked up cooking from there. And he definitely was a uh, huge mentor in the beginning. Yeah. And But you worked in a restaurant named after your grandmother. Was that your own restaurant? Or? Yeah, I opened a restaurant called Hazel with um, Neighborhood Restaurant Group in 2016. It was named after my grandmother, Hazel. We had her zucchini bread on the menu served with the very lovely vegetarian option of foie gras mousse. Nice. <laughs> and yeah, a majority of the dishes were very meat centric. And, you know, I was dabbling with vegetables then. But I think working with that at that volume and, and it was a pretty successful restaurant and just start thinking about how we're doing this, why we're doing it, what's going into the bin every day. It just became this, you know, voice in the back of my head of like, this doesn't feel right. So, yeah. So then you opened Oyster. Oyster, when did it open? Um, that's always a tough one. So we were with twenty March of 2020, we were a few weeks away from our final permits and paperwork. <laughs> like many, um, I remember putting in some final orders for some equipment and my business partner messaged me. He's like, just stop ordering everything. Now. <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. So uh there was that for a little bit, tried to figure that out. And then around July of 2020, we dabbled with takeout because we couldn't do indoor dining. And here's a restaurant that's vegetarian, vegan, local, uh, sustainable. We can't really do to-go packaging, but we need to if we want to survive. Um, making like mushroom cheesesteaks and pizzas and stuff we never thought we would do. And then through that perseverance in which we're coming up on our second uh anniversary june of 2021 we finally opened to the public indoors and um served the cuisine we always thought we were going to serve so is it entirely vegetarian now uh it's it's it fluctuates between vegan and vegetarian right now i'd say our menu is vegan we don't use any butter uh cream or eggs on the menu at all we do have the one oyster uh we'll usually do like a sauce or an oyster on the menu there's um you know, there's folks who go in the camp that oysters can be vegan. There's those who deny it. I'm not up for any debate there. It's just we live in the Chesapeake. And with sustainability being a huge part of what we do, um, rebuilding those waterways and, and making sure that we have a healthy environment all around is oyster conservation is one of the great things we can do. So it makes sense. Like I always say, if we open this restaurant in Minneapolis, we would not be serving oysters. We'd have a different name. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. And so oyster is... Oysters, the the bivalve, and oysters, the mushroom, right? Is that why you have both? Yeah, exactly. They're kind of our little, our symbolism for healthy waterways, which, you know, 
in in an oyster reef it's symbiotic to so many beautiful other species and cleans the water and filters it protects us from wave damage from storms um and then just makes you know affects even what happens on land and mushrooms are the fruit of a healthy soil with mycelium and biology underneath so they're like the two symbols of like healthy a healthier earth so we want that to be our guiding light in everything we do yeah oysters aren't just sustainable they're restorative as you said or regenerative as is the preferred term at the moment i think yeah. <laughs> but yeah they they clean up the waterways and as you said they strengthen they build up reefs and like they're just awesome in every way yeah and they taste good Yes, <laughs> which I do. There you go. You're in the club. <laughs> uh, so, so what is your oyster preparation now? Uh, right now we're doing like a play on an XO sauce. I wouldn't call it an XO, but we, we salt the oysters. Um, we cook them down with a lot of spring alliums, so spring onions, garlic scapes, et cetera, really low caramelized mixed with the oysters themselves um we have like a, a miso that we make a little koji and garlic and finish that with a nice smoke um and then that's dressed with uh cucumbers both raw and charred and a little salad of turnips on top that sounds great i would eat that yeah but other than that everything else is uh vegan yeah right right now yeah totally so down to our desserts yeah and and big focus on local stuff obviously and forage things and all that yeah everything is local like we we don't use any like refined cane sugar everything that we season with is either going to be uh maple syrup honey or maple sugar reduced maple um which is fun it gives us like a sense of place like maybe everything that's sweet has this little hint of maple but that's the sugar source we have and that's like what it's going to taste like um, our, we use a salt that we get from the Delaware coast from Hemlinden sea salt, which is really great. We're just really trying to bring all that stuff back. Um, it's, it seems new, but in a way it's, it's the old way of doing a lot of things, right? Yeah. It's how it's always been done. There are some vegans who also will tell you that honey doesn't count as vegan. Yeah. As which we're ready for. Yeah. It's, it's like the thing, right? It's, it's right. opinion based on, on that. And that's, that's fine. And we're, we're always ready for that. we we have plenty of maple syrup to accommodate. Those of you, those those customers who do not want you to be enslaving bees, as as I believe they say, yeah. which, you know, I'm not judging. That's their path. Cool. What? Why not though? Serve also all of the local lovely chickens and uh, and other other animals in your region. Yeah. So I mean. There, there are humane ways to do this and sustainable and regenerative ways as we talked. And I think animals are an important part of the farm um, in terms of enriching the soil and the biology. I think they just need to be walking around um, freely. But I don't really think as a chef, the, the trickle down effect, say I did buy a really good grass fed cow and I made this really awesome burger and someone writes about it and puts it in there and someone's saying, oh, that combination's good. Let's do it. But then they're going to buy crappy beef. Right. And then it's just like, I'm not really promoting agriculture or a sense of place because a piece of beef for majority, unless it's some coastal Wagyu that eats seagrass, you know, it's, um, you're not really telling a story of, of where you are regionally. Uh, so that's kind of the main part of it. Also, there's so many environmental effects we're seeing. And until we see that change, I, I don't want to serve anything like that. That makes sense. So uh, 
what are some uh, dishes that you're especially psyched about? Probably all of them, but uh, yeah, it's always a hard one to uh, say. But um, you know, we we it's fun. We do this roasted lion's mane mushroom. Uh, the lion's mane's being grown. You know, it's it's cultivated uh, by this wonderful guy AJ right out in Rockville, Maryland. He's been working with us to get the right texture we want. Um, and we like, we, we roast it, we press it, we marinate it, we, we grill it and then we serve it. Um, and then those accruciments or sides are always changing and we're finally getting the first summer squash in and that's like so exciting. So like this marinated squash salad with like baby squash blossoms on it. And it's, it's really fun how this, this mushroom has been like through three seasons with us, but keeps evolving. And I know the staff's so happy to finally see green things after the old gray winter. So it's really, really fun to see that. Um, we have this pecan mousse tart that's that's vegan, like we said, um, that's being served with berries. We have like the first blueberries and raspberries coming in to complement the strawberries. And it's just really nice to have fruit that's not an apple after six months of that. So <laughs> once again, all the life and excitement and electricity is coming back to the menu. So we're thrilled with that. That's exciting. So yeah, you mentioned apples. What what else do you do? in? Because you're in a temperate climate. So what do you do in the winter? Is it a lot of root vegetables? Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of root vegetables. I mean, we're, but we, we get really creative. I'd say the spring and summer is like really exciting because we have this plethora of things we can use. But in terms of creativity, the winter is probably um, the most rewarding because we're very limited. Like you said, we have rutabaga, celery root, carrot, beets. It's really cut down to that radishes and and cellared ingredients. And then towards the end, you see those aren't cellaring so well anymore. And you're really hoping the weather warms up <laughs> because you need to put something on the plate. Um a lot of potatoes, things like that, you know, and um, they're very humble ingredients and being able to like represent them in a very fun and exciting way is, is super cool. So what is something that you remember from your winter menu that uh, you thought really expressed uh, you and your team's creativity? That's a good one. Um, so we, we had uh, sweet potatoes we were like we want to do that um and do it in an interesting way so what we would do is we would marinate them in a koji like koji and spice mix for about 24 hours and then we'd char them on the outside and we were shaving them really thin and shingling those and then picking them up in this like seasoned oil uh and then they were over a bunch of braising greens that were still available so like all the things that people are probably tired of like kale and like these old uh, greens that are not really that fun that were cooked down in a bene miso and then we get these really lovely virginia peanuts from uh, southern virginia we made this really delicious peanut broth that was poured table side with it and they're just like peanuts and greens and sweet potatoes and it's just really lovely lovely and comforting dish to serve that time of year that sounds great. Bene me. So Benny is in sesame seeds? Yeah, exactly. Uh, we work with a uh, really great producer. They're right in Pennsylvania and they make all their misos and vinegars um, with just mid-Atlantic ingredients. Uh, they have a great source for that. We actually have um, some really lovely sesame seeds right now too, coming from a, a farmer in Southern Maryland who, because of climate change, normally sesame does not grow really well here in Virginia. 
And since our temperature and climate's changing, we get a fantastic crop and it's delicious and it's really fun to have this ingredient that we normally wouldn't have. Yeah, I don't think I've ever had fresh sesame. I bet it's awesome. Yeah, it's super cool. It's so much more fragrant and delicious and it hasn't had any opportunity to oxidize or anything. So uh, really fun ingredient to play with. Little goes a long way. That's cool. So what if other people want to do more, other chefs want to do more local seasonal stuff, uh, is there, can you recommend approaches that they should take? How do they start going down that path if it's not something they've done a lot of before? Um, build a relationship at your farmer's market or with a local farmer, because they're going to be able to forecast everything and tell you what's, what's coming, right? You got to get out of that kid in the candy shop mentality of like, you can just go on a website and order whatever you want. You have to kind of be flexible and, um, be ready to fail a lot, you know, like take chances on things. That's part of what we do every day. We embrace that. We we experiment with things and, Sometimes it just doesn't work out and it's it's disgusting. But through that, you might find one little glimpse of something that's valuable. And then you 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 can find that. And then you start building this repertoire of, okay, in October, we know this is coming in. All right, we have these like 10 things we know we can do and, and work with that and be flexible. I think that's the thing. We have to be like the weather if you want to cook seasonally. And some days it rains, sometimes the sun's out. And you have to be ready to do that. And it, it can be hard, but if you cultivate a healthy environment with your team and it's an open conversation and a positive place, it's successful. That's cool. And and you you said kid in a candy shop, which I think is something that chefs realized they weren't in anymore during uh, the height of the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and then after the after lockdown, the supply chain was completely broken. And so people couldn't find stuff. I mean, was you working with local farmers? I feel like maybe you had less of that than people who were importing things from all over the world. Yeah, in a very dark situation, we definitely had the advantage. Like we didn't really see a drop in that because they were growing the food there and we were their direct contact because at the time, farmers markets weren't even open in in the early days and then they opened back up and um you know, I think that's what a lot of our community here in the D.C. region did. They started buying a lot more CSAs from these farmers and they were delivering like community drop offs to pick up these products. And there wasn't a shortage, you know, um, you know, it's like relying on that and that flexibility is helpful. And when you have a restaurant that's kind of mono product and built around something and that supply chain is damaged, that that's really painful. And that's I feel bad for those individuals. I'm not like boasting that I have a better thing, but um when you work with those situations, it's, it does help. And um, we definitely didn't see as much. And even like the price thing that you heard, the what we the eggs, we say we were buying eggs. Like I look at that as like the marker of egg prices, right? We were always, we, you know, we could always buy these farm eggs and they're all kind of consistently the same price. And then people are like, the, the eggs at the supermarket this much. And I'm like, still cheaper through my farmer. <laughs> and they're probably just commodity eggs. I don't, I don't even know, you know? So that was always a good marker to, to see. Um, yeah, commodity eggs in, in my local supermarket got up to like seven bucks a dozen. Oh, a while. Yeah. <laughs> but I live in a, in a pretentious part of Brooklyn. So <laughs> they were probably, probably would have been cheaper if I'd walked a couple miles to the Caribbean neighborhoods. There you go. So what what's the hardest part of your job? 
Oh, that's a great question. I, I love that. Um, geez, uh, being being a good role model for my team and and staying truthful and consistent with that, I think is is the hardest part because I always want to want to be there. You know, we just got a lot of accolades and uh, on being pulled to do really awesome things like this right now. And I, I want to be there for them and I want them to know that they're still supported. So finding that time to be present with them as much as possible is, is the thing that I, I don't want to say I struggle with. I think I'm, I'm good at that and I'm there, but I think that's really being open to them and not being caught up in all the other things that are part of a restaurant. It does have to be kind of nuts now, because I imagine I'm not the only media person who wants to talk to you at the moment. So that's that's <laughs> got to be hard because running a restaurant's a full time job. Yeah, it is. It is, and like a, I wear many hats there, and you know, part of a lot of things, and like have my my finger on it. Not as like a control thing. It's just it's a small restaurant, you know, and um, there's a lot going on, but it's a great win for the team. Like they're so excited about it. It's a great win for sustainability and like what our mission is and, and what we're all working for. And that's the most important part of this. My team's there because something about sustainability, whether they're they're they were vegan or they just want to be more environmentally conscious or looking at better ways to run a restaurant with less waste. Like everyone has a reason they're there. And it's great that it's not just like restaurant by Rob Ruba and I'm there to just be because of him, you know, and, and that's, that's a beautiful thing because we're, that means we're all in it for a bigger cause than I, I, one person. And I imagine with your sustainability uh, mission, you also want to have sustainable lives for your employees. So would you like to talk about how you treat them? Yeah. I mean, it's, I guess it's about, you know, being a leader more than a manager is is one thing. I, I just look at myself as someone to help. I have a, you know, 20 plus year career. So I'm, I'm a good person to guide them from wrong decisions, right? And and embrace the good decisions they're making and, and really, you know, build them up. Uh, like one thing we did was we wanted to make sure we were closed two days, uh, a Sunday and a Monday. That way, you know, a lot of people that are in our industry, they have a partner who is not in this industry and having a day that you can celebrate as a weekend with them is, is really important. Um, and then having a day to yourself is kind of awesome. Like Monday's off is the rest of the world went back to work and you can kind of like navigate the world uh, in a calmer setting. Uh, another thing is we broke down the barriers and it's not really that new of a thing of like front of the house and back of the house. That was part of the design too, a very open concept where, you know, cooks, cooks are running food and talking to, you know, our guests as well. Um, and, and part of that, we're all part of the service service charge on there. That's very transparent, but I want all those, I want cooks to be paid well. I want them to have lives that are not like what I had, whereas seven of us in an apartment in Queens, you know, just trying to get the work um, and have, have a good livelihood and take care of them. Uh, we close the restaurant for two weeks every year. That's a paid vacation for all of our staff members. We do that because I, I hate the idea of you, someone taking a week off and then they're worried about their station. I want the whole thing shut down and it's out of sight, out of mind and make sure we're not open on holidays so that people can celebrate with their family. We're not pushing to be open Thanksgiving day to carve turkey because guess what? We don't serve turkey. And um 
you know, and just really having a healthy environment that's that's open, that people are heard, that they have dignity, humility. Um, you know, our last seating every night's at 8.30, our, our cooks are out by like 10.30. Um, just trying to make like a better culture all around, you know. Uh, and just if anyone needs anything, enrichment programs, you're trying to go for your next level in your, your SOM career, let us support you with that. If there's you know, some seminar you want to go see as a cook, like let's, let's find tickets for you and help you get to that. And, you know, encourage reading and, and group conversations, uh, taking a more holistic approach because no one showed me any of that. And, you know, soon <laughs> I'll be older than I am now, and it's going to be harder to do what I do. And you're never really taught an exit strategy or what we're supposed to do as chefs after this, right? Because, you know, it's a, it's a grueling industry or it was, we're trying to make it a little less grueling, but like where to go. And I, I want to be able to create that environment where we have a good support system and help people with the right decisions and, and have a better restaurant environment for the future. Uh, because I love going to restaurants. I'm sure you do. And we want them to still be exciting places that are, are fun and, and know that there's good behind the doors when we go in there. So how do you find the time and emotional space to do that when you're running a restaurant, which is hard? Um, I th fortunately, I think through the early days of COVID, we, we had more time to think about how we were going to formulate the restaurant. And it's a lot easier for someone like me that opened a restaurant for this than someone who already has something that's been long running and institutionalized and chipping away. Um, so it, it, building those building those systems, I think, was really important in how we do it. Um, you know, it's just the way our service is set up, way we we do our reservations. It creates like a very we're very informed in what needs to happen that day, and there's less variance. Um, so there's not as much scrambling like, oh, we need this, we need that, blah 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 blah. Like everyone's. And we've kind of set up a system where for the kitchen, every cook is responsible for one dish start to finish. So um, when service starts, they know I'm just I'm just making that, you know, it's like a calm space. Um, I'm very transparent with my staff, like we can talk about anything at any point in time. I don't have an office, so <laughs> I'm just I'm just in it. So I, I think it's it's a way to approach one another at all times. And um you know, I am, you know, I am a partner in this restaurant. I am the chef. I am the leader. But at the same time, I want us to be able to work at, at a very equal level and and know that we're all just in this thing together and, and that I'm more there to just guide. So the time is, you know, it's there because I'm I'm in it, you know, um, we're able to just talk through preparation or, or even during service. Like that's one thing we we pride ourselves on is our our joy and our laughter we can have in the restaurant that we have a kitchen counter but we'll still be joking with each other and laughing and fooling around a little bit while we're putting out this very serious uh mission um i think that's important to have a place when you go home at night whether it was hard or not you still feel good about where you were and who you were working with well speaking about things that are hard making money in restaurants is is hard i'm told so, you know, you have all of these lovely, pristine products and you're treating your staff well and you're closing on holidays and you're not open two days a week. So how, how, how do you how does the economics of that work and how do you make sure that you stay profitable? Yeah, I mean, one is I, I think we're a very affordable restaurant for what we offer. 
but charging what it actually costs for the quality ingredients to support our, our producers, to support our team, and, and just putting that cost pretty much up front. Um, and then um, just, I don't know, just we cut out so much stuff that costs money with sustainability. Like we're not buying plastic wrap. We're not buying cryovac bags. We're not, you know, wasting our money on a bunch of fancy linens for the bathroom to dry your hands with that cost. You know what I mean? Like it's just, there's a lot of these extra costs that are part of a restaurant that add up that aren't necessary really, you know, and I think it can still provide a very lovely experience without that, you know, um, you know, we're not shipping in A5 Wagyu or, or Uni and things like that, that are expensive. And, and honestly, there's a point where you can only charge so much for that, or, you know, you're not going to have anyone there. So I think that's, that's tough to navigate that. Um, you know, and I think it's, I'm not the, a greedy person. I'm not trying to take everything out of that and, and profits and stuff. So I think it's just being, you know, looking at it. I want this to last for a long time. I want my team to be there for a long time. So, you know, find what's comfortable for me and then make sure the rest goes to everyone to succeed and be comfortable too. How much does it cost to eat at Oyster Oyster? It is $95 for eight to nine course menu. Um, we do offer a NA pairing with a bunch of really cool juices and infusions that we make in house. That's like $45. And then we have our wine pairing for $65 um, or by the glass or bottle. If you want, it's all available there. And at, involved in that, when you make your reservation, we do it all through platform with Resi. So, um, you know, the service charge is just added on at the bottom there. So hopefully you come in, you eat, you get up, you leave. There's no transaction after that. You just had a good experience. You get to walk out. And having a prefix probably makes it easier to manage costs too, because you know exactly what you're going to make for everybody. Exactly. And that's that's part of the model. I mean, original, original build-outs of this restaurant, we had like four course with four options for each. And we, you know, we went through that, realized it's it's better if we just cook what's best that day and have it have it set. You know, obviously people come in with allergies or aversions and we have to switch things around a little bit. But um, yeah, controlling that is is important. And I think just being really proud of what we do and and standing behind that and showing people that, yeah, we can make this meal good, even though you're not going to have a choice tonight, but we're going to do our best. And it rarely is someone upset about it. So, well, it's not like you're shy about what you're doing. Like if they're just wandering into the restaurant, then they should do more research, maybe. <laughs> Although I feel that way a lot about, since I work for the trade press, I kind of tend to be anti-customer, which I probably shouldn't be because obviously they're your bread and butter, so to speak, but some of them just seem so silly at times. So you you mentioned alcohol pairings and you have some sort of a beer collaboration going on. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. So my good friend, uh, Josh Chapman, he has a brewery out in uh, Chincoteague, out in Virginia called Black Narrows. Um like a very local beer in the sense that all Virginia grain, the yeast they use for their beers is, um, you know, either taken from oyster, goes through a lab and they find the yeast. It's really more scientific than just throwing an oyster in a beer or the native uh, yeast in the air. Um, does really cool conservation stuff, working with like wild pine trees in the, in the national park and making beers out there and bringing awareness. So we we made a beer right before we opened 
Um, and then we were like, we need to make another one. So this year we we did one with um, spice bush branches, also known as Appalachian allspice, which is this really delicious native berry that grows in the fall. It's got these citrus notes and like mild like Szechuan peppercorn kind of thing going on and obviously the allspice. But in the winter, we don't have that, but we have the branches from the tree that put out this really lovely like citrus note and a little bit of spice. So we brewed a saison together with that. Um, as quoted by Josh, not me, he says the best saison he's ever made. So we're pretty excited <laughs> for that. Um, and we took the, there's a folklore creature named uh, Bujum, who is like kind of a Bigfoot. So it's called Bujum Sleeping. And it's kind of the story we made up that the forger was out there with someone collecting the branches and he looked down and he saw this Bigfoot creature sleeping and he whispered to his friend that Bujum was sleeping and they had to navigate their way away from the spice bush trees. Um, and we're really happy that's going to go on to tap this week at the restaurant. And it's really fun to serve something that's made with wild local wild ingredients and local yeast and 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 the wheat and the hops. It's it's really cool to make something that's truly local, not just a local brewery, but a beer that's really a, a sense of our time and place. That's cool. So what was your involvement in it? Was it a, did you talk about flavors and ingredients and stuff? I, I actually drove down there with my family and I spent a morning snapping branches and making the mash. And Josh really put me to work that day. I was just, I was free help. <laughs> <laughs> Lifting heavy bags of malt and pouring them into, into vessels. So yeah, it was very much my hands were involved in making this. Yeah. And then he did his magic of, making it taste delicious from there on he yeah. did the yeah the beer making that i don't understand at all and don't. <laughs> it's like cooking but you have to anticipate what it's going to taste so much farther down the road you can't i mean exactly. maybe taste as you go i guess but not really so so we're coming into summer what what are you excited about for summer Oh, vacation and going to the beach. Uh, <laughs> I mean, sure, you should. You're closed for two weeks, I understand. So that's nice. Um, I think like really good tomatoes and, and squash and eggplant. I think I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm excited for this. You know, this will be our second year open this summer. Uh, the restaurant has grown and evolved and the team has become incredible like the early days it was like our opening week and two years ago was just myself and two other cooks and that was it we're finally at a team of like five or six and they've all grown with us and I think we're really gelling and, and putting out some fantastic food if not the best food we put out of that restaurant and I, I'm really excited to see where this season takes us so being uh open five days a week does that mean the whole team works together every day and then has a, a, a quote-unquote weekend off even though it's monday and tuesday yeah, sunday and monday but yeah oh, yeah, monday, yeah we have that shared shared days off which is nice because there's none of that old old world stuff you come in you're like who worked my station last night this is a mess you know it's it's you know really training and teaching them to be like responsible for their station from start to finish and um, I, I think it's a great way to build build a cook into a sous chef, into a chef, because if they can manage that every day and then they can take on more and more and more and then they'll be, you know, they'll be 
mentally equipped to take on a restaurant where few of us are given that opportunity <laughs> and we go in and, and fear takes over and people yell and scream and, and throw things and hopefully that doesn't happen yeah I, i've heard that one one issue that a lot of uh cooks have is that they they just don't have enough self-confidence to like take ownership of things so i think it's cool that you're giving them that ownership and then they eventually probably pretty soon realize that they can do it yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the best parts about us having uh, the cook team run the food and talk to our guests. One, they're the, the most, the person that is the biggest authority on that ingredient, right? They've been cooking it every day for months a week for a season, but it's also like a good test in public speaking. You know, you're not like hidden behind, you're, you're, you're talking to one another. So then when you get into these higher positions where public speaking and talking and motivating people is pretty crucial. Um, they're, they're equipped with that skill set already. That's awesome. Well, Rob Ruba, we're about out of time, but I wanted to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Congratulations on all of your success and on helping make the world a better place. It's always nice. Yeah. And maybe, maybe I'll see you in real life someday when I'm down in DC. That'd be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you. Likewise.